0: We want to let the audience know that this episode delves into suicide. We both share personal experiences and thoughts that may be a little intense, and you may want to consider that moving forward. If the subject of suicide sparks any trauma for you, this may be an episode that you want to skip.
1: Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck.
0: I am Karen.
1: I am a liberal.
0: And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends.
1: We are friends.
0: We are.
1: And speaking of friends, you made some new friends this week, Karen Michelle. Tell us about it.
0: I did. I did. We had the honor of being asked. Well, let me rephrase that. I had the honor of being asked to join Ian, Michelle, and Kelly on their podcast, which is called That's Delightful. I would encourage you to check it out. It was really fun. I was not... Um, I was a little unsure. I didn't know what to expect because I was going to be the only conservative with three liberals, but they were very kind and we had, we had, we had a lot of fun. We had good conversation and it was a lot of fun. So I really appreciate them asking me to be on the show and I would encourage you to check them out.
1: Well, I'm glad you were able to do that. Had I been there, I would have put your conservative little butt in its place, but they were nicer to you than I would have been.
0: Hmm. So how's the rest of your week been? It's been pretty good. It's been pretty good. I think fairly non-eventful. I am doing better. My voice is coming back. And so that's good.
1: Well, that's Um, good for you. That's not. And it's good for the podcast. It's not necessarily good (laughs) for society at large.
0: Wow. You are feeling feisty right now.
1: I'm just thinking about every cashier that you talk to, every drive-through clerk that you talk to. They're probably all thinking, oh, damn, her voice is back.
0: <laughs> my kids hate that. I am one of those people that will be like, how is your day going? Are you having a good day? You look a little sad. You know, what's going on? And the people will tell me what's going on and everything. And it just embarrasses my kids so much. They're like, mom, shut up. Oh, I no know. One I've been
1: on the phone wants- with you talking about the show, <laughs> was- trying to get this stuff coordinated when you decide to find out about the cashier's granddaughter, if she's picked their college yet or what is she going to major in. And I'm like, well, no, I'll just wait. I, 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 I'm not doing anything. Oh,
0: because I never wait on you. <laughs> yeah, I never wait on you. And you never interrupt me. There's never any issues like that ever.
1: Never. I'm, I'm a very polite man. I'm known for my politeness.
0: Tell me about your week. Anything interesting happen?
1: Not really. I don't live an interesting life. (laughs) I live a pretty dull life. So no, there's nothing. I mean, it's the weather's been nice, and Rudy and I have been able to Rudy the Wonder Dog, who is the official mascot of the show, (laughs) is. uh, You
0: know, I have a pretty awesome dog too. She's really pretty and really sweet. Why does Rudy get to be the mascot of our show? Why can't Ellie be the mascot of our show?
1: Off the air. (laughs)
0: Okay. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, I'm, I'm feeling, my dog is feeling left out. You are assuming that your dog is automatically better than my dog, which I, you know, that kind of feels like a typical liberal behavior. <laughs> I just throwing that out there.
1: Okay. Okay. We're going to talk about this off the air. <laughs> okay. And get started on this episode. And I am probably not going to be friendly through it because you've just insulted my <laughs> dog. Who? I did not I insult your add.
0: dog. No, Karen, I did not insult one more your question,
1: dog. Karen. Is <laughs> Ellie a member of our group? Does she participate <laughs> in conversations?
0: Not yet, but I'm sure she will soon. <laughs>
1: okay. Until then, she's a non entity to people listening to us. So
0: didn't Rudy just joined our group this week. And it's funny because it seemed like to
1: the show. <laughs> <No idea. laughs>
0: That's the wrong show.
1: <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> never mind.
0: <laughs> let's just, let's just move on with this episode because we have a, a very serious episode and it's devolving quickly. So let's <laughs> Let's get started okay,
1: let me get let me let me say off the top of top here mm-hmm. this episode is not about the right to own a gun. Mm-hmm. It's about the wisdom of owning a gun. It's about the consequence of owning guns sometimes. It's about the responsibility of owning a gun
0: right, right. and it's the third of our series of guns in America, and I think it's probably gonna be the final one for right now because we're i'm sure everyone is yes we're tired of talking about it but we felt like this this episode was really important to do so we wanted to kind of finish up with this
1: in in this when when you talk about the gun debate we felt like there was one big piece of it missing and this mm-hmm. is what we wanted to get to it's all summed up in this first sentence every day roughly 90 people will die from gunshots
0: mhm
1: 58 to 60 of those will be Mm. self-inflicted. Suicide and impulsivity is where the gun problem lies greatly, where the greatest number of deaths come from guns. It's caused by by guns and impulsivity. Yes. So you can't talk about the, and typically when we talk about this, we say, address mental illness. Mm -hmm. But usually they're talking about the mass shooter, that they had something clearly wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking if we could have just gotten that person help, you know, they wouldn't have massacred a bunch of innocent children because you turn on the TV, it breaks your heart to hear. I mean, it's traumatic for the communities, Mm -hmm. for everyone else. Yet it continues over and over again. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when you turn the focus and say, okay, let's talk about gun violence in general. People always correlate it with urban crime, with gangs, with, you know, criminals, with, but the actual majority of gun deaths are by suicide.
0: Right.
1: That's how most gun deaths, how most guns kill people is Mm -hmm. suicide. And we don't like to talk about suicide. But the reality is that suicide rates are increasing, increasing steadily from 1999 to 2014, the suicide rate in the United States has increased 24%. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, that's pretty significant.
0: It is. Yeah.
1: In 2014, suicide was the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. If you look at people between 10 and 34, it's Mm the second leading cause of death. Wow. The truth of the matter is some people buy guns for the explicit purpose of committing suicide. The New England Journal of Medicine did an examination and found Mm -hmm. that in the first week after purchase, the firearm suicide rate among California handgun purchasers was 57 times higher than the statewide rate. Wow. If you buy a handgun, the leading cause of death in the next year of your life is suicide. Wow. That's, I mean, that's something that's mind boggling.
0: It is truly.
1: And it's access to guns is directly correlated to more suicide deaths. We're going to use veteran suicide as a specific example, but it's our belief that if we were to pull research from law enforcement and other related fields who tend toward firearm ownership, the information is going to be similar.
0: Right, right. And I'm going to discuss the veteran suicide rates a little bit because I am in a military family. We've actually, in the past year, known of three suicides within our own small military community where we're at. So it, it hits home and it's a very, very hard thing to deal with. Um, nearly half, to start with, nearly half of all veterans own one or more firearms. So that's um, like close to 45%. Uh, most veteran firearm owners own both handguns and long guns. According to five thirty eight. veterans make up 7% of society Yet they account for 20% of U.S. suicides. The Veterans Affairs studies indicate that in 2014 alone, an average of 20 veterans died by suicide every single day.
1: And that's something that's been passed around social media and the news, Mm -hmm. everything, everybody knows this. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Everybody knows it.
0: Right, right. The VA study from 2014 also indicated that about 67% of all veteran deaths by suicide were the results of firearms. Now, that's not what you hear as often. Right. I mean, it's assumed, I think, by a lot of people, but those two things are never linked, and they should be. A RAND study on veteran suicide did list restrictions to handguns as an official preventative for veteran suicide. So RAND, who's known for some of the the better studies on veteran affairs, actually lists restriction to handguns as one of the most effective methods.
1: Yeah. when you're talking about 67% of all veteran deaths by suicide were the result of firearm injuries... The population as a whole, it's 54%. And it's directly related to veterans having access to firearms at a much greater rate than the population. That's why their percentage is so much higher.
0: Right.
1: Now, here's something that Oregon tried to do to stop this. Mm -hmm. They crafted a bill that would allow Oregonians to petition a court to revoke the gun rights of a household member in crisis this is, was a bill approved by the oregon senate now mm-hmm. the bill co-sponsor was a guy named brian boquist he was a republican he was actually the only republican to vote for this and oh. after he did it he became a political target of gun rights organizations it's what we talked about political payback if you try to do right. anything even reasonable Right. The Oregon Firearms Federation, OFF, called him a formerly, pro, formerly pro-gun formerly pro Republican, and the mm-hmm. NRA told supporters that the bill was one of the most dangerous pieces of legislation anti-gunners have ever dreamed up.
0: Which goes back to the fear-mongering that we mentioned in last week's episode. Exactly. Right.
1: So, in response to this, Boquist, who served, listen to this, who served as a special forces officer in the U.S. Army, mm-hmm. wrote an email to lobbyists to OFF and the NRA. And in this email, he made his views abundantly clear. I do not, I, or I'm sorry, I do care about veterans blowing their brains out, even if OFF. And the NRA does not. And no amount of emails or calls will change this fact. Wow. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's harsh language, but language they needed to hear.
1: Yeah, Language they needed to hear. That's what we talked about when we talked about emails and phone calls.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He got tons of them. And he said, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Now, in recent years, Israel, they had a su- problem with suicide in their military. Mm -hmm. So you know what they did? They studied it. They studied it and tried to come up with answers. What -hmm. they came up with is that they restricted access to firearms for soldiers. You know, They only let them have them when they needed them. Mm -hmm. And they would not let them take them home on the weekends. Mm -hmm. You know what they saw? What? A 40% drop in suicides.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: Now, in the U.S. population, gun accessibility throughout the states correlates directly with higher suicide rates. Mm -hmm. Wyoming is a part of a cluster of these western states, Nevada, Colorado, Idaho, Alaska, that have the highest gun ownership rates and such higher than average suicide rates that some researchers refer to this region as the suicide belt.
0: Wow. So in that particular situation, like all the gun ownership rates were super high and the super suicide rates like correlated almost exactly with it. Right. If I remember correctly, when we looked at the graph, it was nearly identical. Right. The ownership versus the suicide rate. Almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: The nine states with the lowest gun ownership rates have the lowest Mm -hmm. suicide rates. Now, here's here's where it gets. A little bit trickier because we think of suicide as this person who's been depressed. Mm -hmm. Suicide's an impulsive act.
0: Right.
1: Less guns equals less ability to go through that with that act, to follow through Mm -hmm. with that act. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, depression's always discussed, but not the biggest catalyst of suicide. And it's impulsivity. Impulsivity. Mm -hmm. Plus a gun, that's the problem.
0: Right, right.
1: Think about a couple of these statistics, and I'm going to tell you. Pills are used in 71% of suicide attempts, guns are used in 6%. Hmm. Pills are effective 2% of the time, guns are effective 87% of the time.
0: Hmm.
1: And 90% of all people who fail at suicide attempts won't mm-hmm. try it again.
0: Wow. That's really important. It
1: I is think, important to look at right there.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: there's no coming back from that bullet in your head. Right. You know, there's no second yeah. chance. There's rarely a second chance.
0: Right, right.
1: Dr. Matthew Miller in Harvard, he's um, part of Harvard's injury control research center.
0: Mm-hmm. He said
1: one of the biggest myths about suicide prevention is the notion that people who don't succeed at killing themselves will simply find another means until they succeed. And he goes on to say, you've got people saying, oh, if he didn't shoot himself, he would have just jumped off a tall building or found found another way to kill himself. It's not illogical. It's just wrong. Facts strongly say otherwise. Hmm. The New England Journal of Medicine Notes that mm-hmm. suicidal urges are caused by immediate stressors such as breakup, job loss, family conflict, mm-hmm. issues that go away with the passage of time. Right. And as we said, 90 people, 90% of the people who survive suicide attempts, including the most lethal types, like shooting oneself in the head, don't end up killing themselves later. The statistics show the temporary and fleeting nature of many suicidal crises. Yes. Now, here is a devastating statistic, Karen. It perfectly sums up this argument. 24% of all suicides occur within five minutes of the victim considering suicide.
0: Wow. This is five from, minutes.
1: You can look if you want to look this up, this is from the Houston study. They talked to people that failed in their suicide attempts. A large, large group of people. Eighty-six mm-hmm. percent occur within eight hours. Right. Which is right. why people want waiting periods for guns.
0: Right. Wow. But you think about that, five minutes.
1: Twenty-four percent within five minutes. Now within right. five minutes, you can't drive to a bridge and jump off of it. Right. Within five minutes, you probably can't gather up enough drugs and do it.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. But if
1: you have a gun in your nightstand, you can get to that gun within five minutes. Right. Now, wow. just, I mean, take a minute to think about that statistic. Now, add in the reflection by a young man after a failed suicide attempt. This is what he said. What the hell did I just do? I don't want to die. And another... I instantly realized that everything in my life that I thought was unfixable was totally fixable. Wow. Had these men had a gun, instead of attempting to jump off of a bridge, they would not have lived to give those quotes. Wow. I'll share a little personal information here. When I was eight years old, my father Mm -hmm. became one of these statistics. Now he used pills. Um, Mm -hmm. I was eight. Had we had a gun in the house, I don't know that I would have had that much time with him. You know, maybe it would have happened when I was two. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's what happened. My own experience too is people who listen to history. Do or observe know me from whatever they, I've talked about this before. I suffer and I battle pretty much chronically depression. And I own a lot of guns. (laughs) So I am the person I'm warning people about, but not really. um, Mm -hmm. Because depression is not typically the catalyst. It's the impulsivity. Right. And with depression, I I have had a time where things got very, very, very dark for me. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had depression my entire life on and off and but there was a time that I took all my guns to my neighbor who has a gun safe too. He was a policeman or still is a policeman. And I put all my guns in his gun safe because I did not think I was going to do anything, but I did not want guns laying around the house.
0: Right. You knew your own limitations.
1: Right. And you know, that's, that's where it gets tricky. But if you have guns, you have to know that you are at, You are a constant danger to yourself 24 hours a day if you have guns, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I'm not overstating that fact. That might sound dramatic. I'm not. You have to understand that with guns. And I understand it about myself. I understand that, you know, I'm going to be on Prozac or something else my whole life. I understand that I have guns and I'm the person that people could say, oh, he shouldn't have guns. If you look at how suicide occurs, Mm -hmm. no, it's not me. It's not the depressed person. It's the impulsive person. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a disturbing thing, yeah. but it's something that we don't talk about. We don't talk about suicide.
0: Right. Right. I have my own experience with this. My mother suffered from depression also and um, had some other emotional things that she struggled with. And uh, she was a single mother. My dad left when I was two. We were pretty alone there. We didn't have a lot of uh, family that we lived close to or anything like that. And um, I remember one time when I was six, we had just moved to a new state where we really knew no one. I don't even think I had started school yet. I was six years old and my mother was having a a pretty serious downtime and she held a gun to her head and was yelling about some things. And I, I just remember being terrified. I, I remember staring at that gun and being terrified. And I often think you know, she, she didn't end up pulling the trigger. Uh, I think I started crying. Something happened that shifted her attention away. But in that moment, it very easily could have changed the trajectory of my life I would have ended up in foster care it, it, it could have it could have really changed a lot of things about my life and she she dealt with um, she was never officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder but there was a lot of emotional up and downs and and things like that and it she did deal with depression she did not deal with a lot of the impulsivity issues. And I think that that was a defining difference. I know that we do not have medical backgrounds, so we have no official standing. You know, we're just giving our own life observations and going off off of statistics, but it it is an interesting trend. um, The impulsivity seems to be the key in, in these issues. I
1: mean, that's when we were doing the research, that's what we kept running over again and again is People saying that, right. yes, you have to watch people who are depressed because they will commit suicide. But the biggest factor is impulsivity.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, my experience actually zones in on the impulsivity aspect of our discussion. Uh Despite the fact that guns are a major part of military culture, my family actually does not have a gun in our house. And this is because one of my children, who is adopted from foster care, was born prenatally exposed to cocaine, um, among other drugs. One of the major effects of this on his life is impulse control issues. In fact, he has already shot out the window in his bedroom on accident with his brother's BB gun. I just don't want to take the chance on what would happen with anything more dangerous than that. I do want him to learn the mechanism of guns, so it's not this big elusive mystery to him. But we don't have any in the house. I, I just I want to demystify guns, but I think that's part of it for him. Is he he just sees what he stuff on TV and it makes it interesting
1: guns. One of the things that I did because I was worried about that. And I have three boys and they were around the house and you know, the guns were always locked up, but I would Mm -hmm. clean the guns and I'd have the boys around and of the three boys, you know, Tanner could have cared less. I mean, he wouldn't have messed with a gun, but Taylor and Tanner, Taylor and Logan, I'm sorry, have been to the range with me. They've sat with me while I've cleaned guns. I've showed them how to do it. And that was all to take the mystery out of guns, to show them that they were mechanical things, and also to take the time to talk to them and tell them the damage guns can do, to um, let them understand right. what they can do. And, and the thing that I always told my boys is if you are at a friend's house and you see someone with a get a gun out, don't tell them how wrong they are that they're doing the right thing. Just get out of the house. Get away from it.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I know that in, in my situation with my son, it's just not worth the potential cost. Having a gun for whatever reason, is, it's just not worth what could happen. So I know that that was, that was my personal experience. I think when it comes to prenatal exposure, people tend to forget that, number one, there are a lot of these kids out there, and number two, that these kids do grow up to be adults. Statistics regarding prenatal exposure are really difficult to pin down because it's hard to get accurate numbers. A lot of people don't self-report, and that makes it really difficult, but what we do know And keep in mind, these are ones that have been reported. We don't know how many have not been reported. But what has been reported is an estimated 15% of infants that are born are affected by prenatal alcohol or drugs. It's been found that alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, amphetamine, ecstasy, and opiates can all produce alterations in neurodevelopmental trajectory. In other words, as their brains are developing, All of these can affect the development of the brain. Studies in the National Institute of Health specify self-regulation and impulse control. Issues are found in cocaine-exposed infants and even in alcohol and nicotine-exposed babies. They found that the more exposure to one or more of these drugs, the higher the level of impulsivity. So if a woman... If she was smoking and doing cocaine, then that child would have a double portion of impulsivity, according to the study. So, and of course, a lot of the the drugs are linked together. So there's uh, there's just a lot to be seen with that. Taking that into consideration, think about the implications of the '90s quote unquote crack baby epidemic. Right like all those kids that we read about, they're now all grown up and they're all old enough to procure weapons. And according to research, you know, a lot of these kids grew up in homes that were not good socially. They were not uh, beneficial socially. And so their development wasn't necessarily going to counteract the issues that they were already born with biologically because of right. the Right. And prenatal we talk exposure. about
1: these kids, Karen. And there's, there's this weird thing that I always talk about, you know, you look at these shooters and, you know, maybe they had all kinds of problems. And before they did the shooting, they were terrible. And, and when you're talking about the, the crack babies, we look at them as victims mm-hmm. and we try to fix whatever right. we can fix for them until they, mm-hmm. until those effects caused them to do something violent. Then they become villains.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's the victim, to right. villain. And, yeah, and it's the same thing with the kids that, mm-hmm. you know, were molested by the Catholic Church or Jerry Sandusky or whatever. We all have this soft spot in our heart and they're victims and what can we do for them? And And we know that a certain, a small percentage, a very small percentage, but some of them will go on to become predators.
0: Right. They have the ability and then to defend themselves. Right. They're victims until they're not. Right. Yeah. On on a personal level, I just want to say with the the most recent mass shooting with the school. I t- hearing the the stories of the victims was heartbreaking. But as the mother of adopted children, I could not help but have a little bit of a heart tug when I heard the background of the shooter because he was adopted. I could tell by the features on his face that there was some fetal alcohol exposure. So I'm sure that a lot of the behavior issues that people talk about him having were linked to that. It's just People don't realize what it's like to raise kids that, first of all, have prenatal exposure. Second of all, have trauma, adoption trauma and abandonment issues.
1: Right, right.
0: We don't like to talk about these issues. And think about how many kids are in foster care. Most of them deal with these types of issues. Then they phase out. They're walking among us. And then they get you know, they're just demonized immediately when they do things. Now, The majority of them don't do these things, but some do. And we need to be aware of, of the entire problem, the scope of the problem. And it's not just that. It's even in mainstream lives, in, in people's lives that never dealt with some of these traumas uh, because of sports, sports injuries. Yes. It's traumatic brain injuries also cause impulsivity and that's something that affects almost all of us I, in the last couple of years the media has finally started to report on the level of violence in the private lives of many sports stars we've heard some pretty gruesome stories in the last well, couple you know, of years right I,
1: the first one i remember is junior seau he was a linebacker for the chargers he was this beloved mm-hmm. um community figure in san diego He knew something was wrong with Mm -hmm. him. I mean, he was, he was a tough, tough linebacker. He knew something was wrong with him. Mm -hmm. He shot himself in the chest and the heart with the request that they study his brain. And a couple of football players have done that.
0: Oh, wow. Well, there's pretty startling evidence out there that much of this behavior is linked to traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. Um, in fact, according to a study in the Journal of Neurotrauma, a team of researchers from the University of British Columbia found scientific evidence that even the mild traumatic brain injuries, which we know as concussions, can lead to impulse control issues.
1: When, can I can I jump something in there, Karen? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Interrupt. Sure, yeah. When I was talking about my father, he had a he had a very harsh traumatic brain injury. He actually wow. fractured his skull, and that was. That's Mm. when we saw the decline in him.
0: Considering that, considering that even a concussion can cause impulse control issues, think about the implications of that. Right. That's just crazy. Um, The Brain Injury Research Institute, they show that 2 to 4 million sports-related concussions occur per year. And those are ones that are reported. Right. Right. A recent Vox study actually showed that over 80 percent, 80, 80 percent of concussions go unreported.
1: It's because the old, you know, and I'm much older. Right. Mm -hmm. It's because the old thing was, you know, if you can walk, you can play. Right. So nobody got checked for him. Right. Now, I've been fortunate and unfortunate. Uh, Personally, I've had four concussions, four times that I've been diagnosed with concussions. Um, Two times I've been unconscious from the concussions. Mm -hmm. But I was very fortunate because I was treated and they allowed my brain to heal. And it's not so much the concussion that does the damage. It's that second blow after the concussion. That's why you're seeing it with football players, with boxers. My brother Joe was, he he Mm -hmm. boxed quite a bit. He died of ALS, we thought. But then they came out with the realization that even Lou Gehrig, they don't think had Lou Gehrig's disease because he played baseball. He played college football without a helmet. Mm -hmm. He played baseball when they didn't have helmets. He had been hit in the head a number of times by pitches. Wow. And, so it's a syndrome that looks very much like ALS but it's from continued brain rep- repetitive brain injury. Wow. And so it's kind of ironic that they don't think now that Luke Eric had Luke Eric's disease. Yeah. But, yeah, it is. But I saw with my own brother. Um his impulse control issues, you know, he he could be just a straight lunatic at times. Mm-hmm. And five minutes later, be the same normal guy that he was. Right. And it was, you yeah, know, part of it was personality, but part of it was him getting it in the head a lot. And mm-hmm. and I've seen, and, and again, you know, I've been fortunate because the kid I've seen concussions. I've coached baseball and basketball teams. And when we were mm-hmm. doing this and thinking about it, I, I went back and thought about it. I've had four different times that kids that were playing for me got concussions. Three of them Uh in basketball and one of them in soccer. And I used Uh to tell my kids before coaches told them not to do it, not to, uh, you know, if a ball's coming 40 yards downfield that they punt, don't head the ball. (laughs) You know, you're not good enough. It's not good for your head. It's not good for your brain. But that was the thing that I was trying to avoid, these kids getting concussions because you can get concussions from a soccer ball. You know, getting in the hit you don't have to get hit in the head hard to injure it. That's my point that I took a long time to make. So, <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there who have impulse control issues. Add the right social issues on top of that and it's a recipe for disaster. Now these it stats is. were just yep. um for sports. The ones that we just mentioned. The military also has just stunning records on traumatic brain injury and impulsivity that relate directly to suicide statistics. Right. Exactly. This is kind of weird because it's rants and reasons supposed to be a liberal and a conservative that are talking about issues and debating them and being civil to one another or whatever. This is not an issue to debate. Mm-hmm. This is a problem. This is a huge right. problem. Everybody knows it. Right. You're a Republican. Right. You're a conservative. Across party Republican. lines.
0: Mm-hmm. We
1: don't disagree on any of this. Right. It's something we have to solve. Now, unfortunately, this is the part of the show where we give solutions. Yeah.
0: Usually. Mm-hmm. But. But I mean, our, the problem is that there's really no solutions, at least no easy ones. Uh, there are some solutions. There are some flagging things that could come into place, some self-reporting, things like that. But the point we're really trying to make is while we all hear the buzzwords about mental health, that we don't really hear the issues that are being that, that really matter to the heart of the, the gun deaths in this country we need to learn how to address these issues in a constitutionally sound way. And to do that takes an extremely nuanced effort. It's really impossible to respond to all these problems when we paint them with a broad brush. When we say, you know, take guns. Well, you can't really do that constitutionally speaking. And there has to be a way that we work to solve these problems in in a very careful and correct way. We really want our legislators to make sound decisions. And in order to do that, we have to stop being reactively emotional to everything that happens and instead demand action and reform in a very informed way.
1: And it's, our point is really with this podcast is to, just make people recognize what the great problem is.
0: Right. Exactly. We really just wanted to, to discuss it. I mean, obviously we're not mental health professionals. We're not doctors. You know, we mentioned, um, traumatic brain injury and we just referenced studies and used our own personal experiences talking about it. But, you know, we understand we're not professionals and we're not claiming to be, But we're just trying to bring it to what the bring the discussion to issues that we don't hear discussed and issues that really affect everyday Americans in a very real sense.
1: Right. We do, however, have a happy story to tell.
0: Well, before we do that, let's uh, let's tell everybody where to find us.
1: Well, you can find us on Facebook. Rants and Reason, the podcast group.
0: Yes, and you will find a very lively you discussion will. there. And we really, really want to thank our moderators that help us keep it pretty civil. I mean, we, you know, we kind of let people have their opinions, and sometimes those opinions are very passionate. But we want to keep it a civil discourse, and we have some really awesome moderators that help us do that. You can also find us on Twitter at Rants Reason. And we have uh, some pretty cool people that we follow there, too. So we'd love for you to find us on Twitter. Follow us there. And uh, we have a website. Chuck did a fantastic job this week kind of cleaning it up and adding all of our podcasts to it. And that is rantsandreason.org. There you can find our blogs. And um, we're a little behind with getting all of our citations on the blogs, but we're working on it. And we have so all of our episodes like the there. Website? I do. You did a really great job. You really so did. Would
1: you just quit treating me like I'm another pretty face? I'll try. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't want you to feel marginalized. <laughs> so um, it, I think that that's it. Oh, what host sites can people find us?
1: They can find us at www.rantsandreason.org.
0: I just said that actually. But they could also.
1: Podbean. You can find us on Podbean. (laughs) Right. You can find us on iTunes. (laughs) Yeah. You can find us on Stitcher. Yes. You can find us. We will be um, (laughs) guest hosts for the the reboot of American Idol. (laughs) You can see us on TV there.
0: Yeah, we're kind of a big deal. Yeah. Only not really. All right. <laughs> not really. <laughs> so okay. tell us the, oh, go ahead, Chuck. Sorry.
1: No, I, we're going to segue in. Go ahead. <laughs> keep interrupting me. I, I keep know.
0: Telling people
1: how I interrupt you.
0: I know. I know. I feel really bad about that. Um, t- You are the one who researched our ending story this week. So why don't you share it? I like usually like to do it, but this time you share it for us.
1: Well, just sit back and I am going to tell you the tale of three presidents. Oh, Bush Sr., mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. and Bush Jr.
0: Most people call him W.
1: They do, but it can get confusing. I like senior and junior.
0: But one is George Herbert and the other- is. we going have this
1: argument again on the air? Can I just <laughs> say senior and junior? I'm telling the story.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: Now, despite the fact that Bill Clinton pushed senior out of office in 1992- Mm-hmm. Clinton was said to think of George H. Bush, oh, you snuck that in on me <laughs> as a father figure <laughs> um he was known to contact senior frequently when making policy decisions. Okay. Bush jr even refers to Clinton as a brother from another mother
0: brother from another mother, yeah, yeah. Not-
1: Clinton, who's active on social media and has been known to publicly tease Junior on his lack of Twitter skills. Mm-hmm. And when Clinton's daughter, Chelsea, gave birth to her daughter, Bill's first grandchild, mm-hmm. George Jr. called to congratulate him, congratulate him noting mm-hmm. that after he had so, himself had had the pleasure of meeting his own first grandbaby earlier that year,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Clinton needed to get ready because you're going to be the lowest man on the totem pole of your family. Mm -hmm. So these guys talk to each other all the time. They have a good time. They really enjoy each other and and they're almost like family.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So the moral of that story is Mm -hmm. one was a Republican. One was a Democrat. One knocked the other one out of the presidency Mm -hmm. and they are still friends. Mm -hmm. And if they can do it,
0: We can, too. Bye, everybody.
1: Bye, everyone.